This episode of the Stock Market Movers podcast is brought to you by Calamero St. Helier's. Calamero is one of Auckland's best-rated pizza shops, and you can now order online at www.calamero.co.nz. That is Calamero, C-A-L-I-M-E-R-O.co.nz. Or you can just pop in and see us. It is Saturday, the 8th of February, 2020. My name is Jeremy Medlin, and welcome to episode 71 of the Stock Market Movers podcast. Just a quick reminder that nothing that I say or any of the guests say today should be considered financial advice. And if you're looking for financial advice, I recommend that you speak to an authorised financial advisor. Man, first episode of 2020, boom. (laughs) You're probably thinking, well, it's nearly 2021, what's going on? We haven't had a podcast this year, and sorry about that. It's just been a really busy start to the year for me. It's, it's one of those ones where each week I'm sort of putting it out to the next week and before you know it, bang, it's February. So which is a shame because in many ways, you know, it means we've missed lots of good content so far this year. Um, in this episode, though, we do a bit of a catch-up. I interview a Stock Market Movers regular, that's Matt Joss, for I think it's his third appearance on the podcast. We talk about bushfires, coronavirus, push pay, and we round out the conversation with a, a bit of a catch-up about Tesla. Um, which maybe not an NZX stock, but I know a lot of people are interested in, in hearing about. Um, we we do mention some specific dates in the conversation, so just to put it into context, the conversation happened on the 6th of February, which was Waitangi Day in New Zealand. Um, so let's pick up the conversation from when it started off. It happened on a phone recording over the phone between me and Matt, me in Auckland and Matt in Sydney, so there might be some sound quality issues, but we hope you enjoy the conversation. Right, so I've got Matt Joss on the line based in, Sydney and I think this is the third time you've appeared on the Stock Market Movers podcast now. I think once as a one other time as a guest and one other time as a host. So this is the third time That's and right. I guess it's a bit of both today, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah, thanks very much for having me. Always always happy to come on. So yeah, good to be back. Fantastic. I mean I, I saw you over the new year in, in Sydney, um, and obviously the mm. the big news at the time then was the bushfires in Australia. I think it's it's fair to say in New Zealand there's probably we hear less about it now, but I understand it's what, what what's the latest what do you what what's the latest over there on the bushfires? Yeah, it's pretty devastating. It's hard to like uh, really describe how bad it was across such a large area of the country. So uh, we have I have uh, young twin boys and we could barely leave the house because every day in Sydney and we're quite far away from the bush. We're by the coast. Um, the air quality was so poor that you basically advised not to go outside. And you could see it, very thick smoke and stink of smoke. Um, and obviously that's probably some of the lighter impacts compared to uh, further around other parts of New South Wales, Victoria, etc. cetera. Um, so yeah, a pretty uh, dire impact, I guess. I think it's, we had a fair bit of rain which came through and that was really the only hope that we had of uh, beating them back. But uh, yeah, a, a very, a very significant impact. It was all that anyone was thinking about, I think, in most parts of Australia, and had in, uh, flow-through impacts in all in all sorts of areas. I think raising a lot of uh, kind of awareness for climate change and what needs to be done there, but also kind of some shorter-term business impacts. People weren't going out and spending. A lot of people are just, uh, I guess, a bit more cautious around the economy. People aren't able to their work, people losing their homes and livelihoods, and yeah, it's a, a very, it's, I guess, I think it was so big I saw, which you probably can tell me about, that uh, the cloud 
Bounced over to New Zealand and it was like affecting the sky over there. Is that right? Oh, yeah. There was, I mean, I know it was happening in the South Island as well, but in Auckland one day at around like 2 o'clock in the afternoon, the sky just went completely yellow, like someone had stuck like an Instagram filter over the over everywhere. Um, mm. And it, it, it was like that for a couple of hours and then just went back to normal. And that's what buzzed me out of it is you think how long it takes to fly to Australia. It's a pretty long way and the smoke mm-hmm. managed to find its way here, you know, it's nuts. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, there's a shortage. All air purifiers have sold out pretty much in the country. Um, there are shortages of kind of smoke masks in a lot of areas. And, yeah, there hasn't been a very good time. A few retailers have already come out signalling that, uh, particularly the rural, uh, those that have stores in rural areas, kind of signalling that sales are down, which you'd expect because people just aren't going out um, outside in those areas. So, yeah, and then you've had a whole lot Unless you're an owner of a of a fire mask company or something like that. It's, yeah, I guess it's probably so. There's pretty not tough. Too many fire mask um, uh, Temple <laughs> Webster, which is an online furniture retailer and also is selling air purifiers, has done fairly well. I guess people not going out shopping, so shopping online combined with uh, maybe a few air purifier sales might have helped. But yeah, generally um, not too many benefiting and a, a lot kind of suffering from it, I guess. Would you, I mean, you mentioned sort of maybe other impacts on the economy, and obviously this is an investing podcast. Do you anticipate that having any long-term impact or do you even anticipate like a short-term impact or is it one of those ones that you think, even though there's some, I guess, micro situations in different economies, do you expect it to have a, a, a wider impact? Yeah, good question. I think the first, uh, uh, there's sort of a few main ones. So the retail, retailers kind of slowed down. Then tourism was very um, negatively impacted, which we've had a lot more recently, which we can touch on a bit later with the coronavirus. But um, so tourism was one that just kind of tarnished the image of Australia as being a good destination. I think that'll be um, kind of, that'll go away as we move into, you know, turn the fires are able to be, um, beat back. There's huge damage there. Like the, the, the area destroyed is vast. So a lot of other scenic and nature areas might take a, a bit longer to recover from a tourism point of view. I saw something. There's a very large percentage. I can't remember what it was. It might have been might have been 30, 40 percent of um, some national parks have been damaged uh, by the fires. So people wanting to go visit the Blue Blue Mountains Reserve might not be uh, very attractive for a while. Um, but that, I mean, that can all, that I guess will come over time. The real challenge though, I think, is that this hasn't been solved um, and it'll take a lot more work to prevent this happening in the future. So if this is, you know, if this starts happening again in a couple of summers time, uh, which it could do in certain areas, then I think it just becomes, yeah, pretty tough. Probably not the same summary beachy fun destination. Uh, so that might be some of the longer term impacts. There's also, all sorts of other um, industries you wouldn't have necessarily thought of. So one of the uh, vineyards came out here saying that their crop had been affected by smoke taint and it's basically no good. So yeah. a few things like that still flowing through. But it's more like the reputation side, I think. So do you think it could be something that when the GDP figures come out that it may have had an actual impact on the short term, but maybe not um, unless it's... You know, keeps on happening. Maybe not a, mm. a long-term impact, or but you, I guess you mentioned climate change before as well. Yeah, I think that's good. I think the climate change. It's more. It's not that the this one um, season of bushfires will have a significant long-term impact. It's more what happens 
in the future? Like, does this keep happening? Is climate change driving it? And how does the Australian government react to that? Um, yeah, so I think that that's, those are probably the main areas. And the, the government has flagged that it uh, could see a quarter of negative uh, GDP growth, which is um, a decline. <laughs> it's rare for Australia, uh, right? Yeah, Australia hasn't um, had a... I think they had one quarter during the GFC, so they haven't had a recession, which is two quarters uh, in over 30 years. So we'll see if they even have one now, but it's you know it's very possible. A lot of things have been slowing for a while in Australia, um, and that, I guess, is why the government's fairly concerned. If you have two, then suddenly we're in a recession. I just um, the, the risk would be that confidence changes and you have kind of a self-fulfilling effect as people become more conservative and hear the recession wave for the first time in 30 years. Yeah, that would be an interesting one. I guess that's a lifetime for a lot of people. And you mentioned the, I guess, on the same sort of, same, same, but different topic, you mentioned the mm. coronavirus before as maybe another, I guess, macro event mm-hmm. having an impact on the economy and maybe the financial markets as well, although I note that a lot of the markets have seemed to be brushing that off. Yeah, I'm surprised in Australia. I think people don't realize how big Chinese um, tourism and student um, kind of impact is here and how interlinked the economy has been the largest trading partner. So I, I think that's, I think although the bushfires everyone was very aware of because it was, everyone yeah. was affected by it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was no, it's not, you weren't just watching it on TV all the time, but you could just see it and smell it. Um, I think that this one, because a lot of Australians aren't, you know, Chinese tourists or aren't students. They might not see it, but it's huge, um, a huge earner for Australia. So starting with tourism, Australia has um, banned, like New Zealand and the US and a few other countries, all visitors from China who aren't um, Australian citizens. So that's basically 15% um, plus of tourists. And so that has an impact on day one, that right? That, that, like exactly. If, if, you, if, if, say, you were mm-hmm. a... a and I, I, the first thing I think of is retail. Like, say, if you were a retail store, um, and there was going to be a, a tourist arriving from China tomorrow, yeah. and they were going to be spending money in your shop, suddenly they're not there. Mm-hmm. So it has an immediate exactly, impact. exactly. And it's not like the bushfires, which would have seen a fall somewhat, right? Where you might see thirty percent less tourists. This is a hundred percent less. Um, and so businesses that were very exposed. Uh, so AU makers are. Um, a business that is like a retail shop but tailored towards Chinese tourists, they've had a very it's flagged a very big impact, which they um which makes sense. But yeah, a lot of a lot of areas of tourism would, would be negatively hit by that. And then you've got uh students, so I think international student education was uh, maybe the fourth biggest um export earner for Australia. And this is Chinese and other international students that come to Australia because of the quality of education here. Uh, it's very big. So um, I did uh, myself some computer science postgrad papers at the University of New South Wales, uh, one of the um, kind of leading universities in Australia. And around 80% of um, the other people in the class could be Chinese international students. It was a very, very large, um, particularly for some subjects, uh, number of Chinese students who had, uh, many of them had gone home to China for the holidays and um, some of the, my friends from that course are still now stuck in China and uh, not able to return because they're not permanent residents to kind of continue their studies. So a very big question mark of what's going to happen there with, you know, um, 
hundreds of thousands potentially, or at least tens of thousands of students um, stuck in China and not able to return to their studies. So those would do very direct impacts. And then the th um, kind of third and potentially bigger one is the impact it has on the Chinese economy and how that flows through to Australia, being the major trading partner. And the rest partner. of the world, right? Yeah, exactly. And I guess Australia particularly being so, uh, we export so much to China. Um, so both for their factories, but, you know, if those factories shut down, which many of them have, uh, that's a huge negative. Anything that consumers are out doing and buying isn't, um, isn't as likely to be happening. I think online shopping is probably the only thing that will benefit. But, uh, yeah, the whole economy um, kind of slowing down, so that's direct. And then, obviously, the bigger risk is if it has a fort and kind of drives China into a recession or something else. But that would be extremely negative, given where they're coming from. I guess, I guess the case study is the SARS virus from, I guess, the, is it early to mid-2000s. Um, mm -hmm. But I guess the difference now, you could argue, is that, you know, China was a very important part of the world economy back then, but you'd have to say it's even more significant now. But I mm -hmm. sort of get the feeling with the coronavirus, and this is a, a pretty uninformed opinion, so, you know, take it with a grain of salt, but it'd be interesting to see what, what is thought of it in six months' time. I get the feeling that either way, we're not really getting the full story. We'll even look back on it and it'll it'll be a lot worse than what they're saying it is mm. now or it'll be, or it won't be as bad as what they're saying it is now. I sort of get the feeling either way, we're not really getting the, the, the full picture. Um, yeah, I, I, could be wrong I think that's that. fair. I think uh, particularly early on, it was definitely um, there's some evidence of a cover-up in China with local authorities. I think after that, um, since they kind of announced that it's happening, I think China has been commended by, by the World Health Organization for transparency. So, what, so it's an interesting one compared to SARS. So technology has advanced so much since SARS that um, China uh, was able to get, um, I guess, the code of the virus and like sequence it and share that with the world within like days of the official yeah. announcement. So all around the world now, people have a copy of that virus and they're trying to work on vaccines and they're trying to work on tests and have created tests for it. So that's quite different. And just the spread of information is much more advanced. So everyone knows about it um, well in advance. I guess the, the flip side is that it is, it seems to be much more virulent. So I think 565 deaths now, but um, out of 28,000 infected, but also in particular, the, I think when you're considering that, is have to weigh it up against the number of recoveries, not the total number infected, because it takes a, a bit of time for it to work through into pneumonia and, and sadly cause death. So only 911 people were, have recovered from it so far, and 565 deaths. So you'd certainly expect many more to recover. I don't think that's a um, kind of reflection of the mortality rate of it, but it's definitely a lot worse, I think, than SARS once we get to the full measure of it, which... Uh, was a couple of percent um, mortality rate. So, yeah, more virulent, um, spread in much faster. SARS was able to be contained, but we do have better tools to, to fight it this mm. time. Yeah, and a bit more transparency maybe, like you suggested. One, um, mm -hmm. I mean, we're moving away from discounts and stuff like that to mm -hmm. back to investing, but it reminds me, and I've spoken about it before on the on the podcast, about a trade I did, I think it was back in 2004, 14 perhaps on EasyJet with the outbreak of Ebola in Northwest Africa, um, mm -hmm. and that the company, the company itself was little affected by it, um, mm. 
but the the stock based on the perception was significantly affected. Um, and I wonder if there'll be industries or, or sectors like that where that might be the case. And obviously, I know you just think of Ezion and Qantas as an example. I mean, they're probably a bit more directly impacted because flights have literally virtually stopped, haven't they? But it, it'll be interesting to see if there is sometimes in these sorts of things, despite the, and you almost feel bad talking about it, but there might be investment opportunities arise because of it. Yeah, I'm sure there will. I think um, there'll be a, there's plenty of misunderstanding. I think I think the world could still cope with us, right? Like we have um, we have a lot better. It's not like a hundred years ago with the Spanish flu where we didn't really most people didn't understand germ theory. So we have a much better tools. So that that helps a lot. But there are, I guess, just the severity of it. I don't think we should just look to SARS um, and that it's spreading a lot more quickly and whatever else. So. Yeah, kind of a kind of a mix between the two. There'll be opportunities, but um, I'm not in the camp of thinking that it's. I mean, that's very that should be underrated either. Mm, yeah, uh, like I said, I think it'll be interesting to see how it's looked upon in sort of six months to a year's mm. time. Now, you're obviously a, a, a Kiwi living in mm-hmm. Australia. So, is most of your investing in Australia, or do you consider the the NZDX as well? I mean, what what sort of Things yeah, I'd say it's just relative to the number of companies. So I just recently went through every company in the on the ASX kind of one by one, and there's um, about two, just under two and a half thousand listings in Australia. And that's so when you say one by one, as well. is that getting mm-hmm. a spreadsheet and and <laughs> getting the name of each company and searching it, or what are you doing there? Yeah, I have a spreadsheet that pulls in data from Standard & Poor's, so um, it has my own kind of way, my lens of analysis that I'm looking through. So, yeah, just going through one by one. Some of them I'm spending very little time on, so I basically don't invest in mining exploration companies at all and effectively not in mining companies generally. So that's so that rules a very large share of the ASX. <laughs> it's about, yeah, it's about 40% of the ASX. Yeah. Oh, sorry, it's about 20, uh, close to 30% there, and then... I also don't look at companies like biotech that are just perpetually losing money. Um, so it would no, often they won't even have any revenue. So those would be ruled out. So I think about half of the market, I think, could be ruled out pretty quickly. Um, but getting back to your question, so there's about two and a half thousand in Australia and a bit over a hundred or maybe even less than that when you think about operating companies versus funds um, in New Zealand. So I think just kind of relatively, New Zealand's going to be a lot smaller for me, probably 10 to... 20% of a portfolio um, just due to the different opportunities. But, mm. um, yeah, I do I do definitely look at New Zealand. It's a very overlooked market, I think, uh, internationally. You know, if you, a lot of people can't even trade New Zealand. A lot of people in Australia don't have the ability to invest in New Zealand. Um, so I think that means there's less people looking at companies. Yeah, and I guess we were, we were speaking a bit off here before is that maybe there's fewer companies now than what there has been in the past. Oh, I don't have the, the data in front of me, but you'd, you'd almost have to say that there's, there's list, less listings now in the NZX than ever, and, and in other markets as well, maybe with the exception of Australia. I know there's way less listings in the United States than what there was 20 years ago as well. Um, but it certainly, you notice it more when there's only 100 companies. Yeah, it's a bit, it's a bit sad. I think that my, I think the NZX is, is dying. I think they need to make dramatic changes to the way that they operate things or find some way um, to to attract uh, earlier stage growth companies. Mm. Um, and I think if not, then there'll be less than a few years with just utilities and 
uh, NZOME companies and any kind of international growth companies will move to ASX, and that's already happening. So um, you mentioned you know, not much growth, but there's, there's been almost no IPOs, right? In New Zealand, there was um, the cannabis company. I can't remember, was it Canna South? Canna South, um, yeah, and we had the Port yeah. here as well. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so a Port, not, I mean, not, not a bad investment, but not an international growth company by any means. Um, and then the at the same time, had... is that, um, mm-hmm. sorry to interrupt, is that I think back in the day, the people would, companies would see stock market as a way to raise capital. And, and that's why you'd have the smaller, maybe faster growing companies on there because they were there to to raise capital and there was a lot less red tape and it was relatively easy to do compared to now. Whereas I think what you've, what you've seen is a lot of the smaller companies either maybe searching on the ASX for that capital or they're finding capital through the private markets. You know, you, the obvious one that everyone sees is the angel investing. And it feels like that the NZX has been left with the larger and more established companies. And the, the mm. upside of that is that in general, those companies are of higher quality. But I guess the downside is that they seem to be slowly being absorbed by other larger companies. And by absorbed, mm-hmm. I mean being taken over and MetLife Care is one of the more recent examples of, of a company that is, is probably, mm. unless the deal crashes, going to disappear from the NZX, which is the... And when you're not getting the replacement IPOs that you were in the past, then the numbers naturally shrink. Yep, you're 100% right. And there's also, um, you know, one of the best companies in New Zealand and one of the best in the world probably is Zero, um, and that just chose to leave... The NZX entirely, right? It was dual listed in Australia and New Zealand, left to be purely listed in Australia. Uh, and the concern despite would be that other companies a, start following suit. Despite being a New Zealand-based company, right? Yeah, exactly. Despite being New Zealand-based, um, Australia is uh, currently their largest market and likely to be superseded by the um, UK. But uh, but still, a New Zealand company with a lot of employees there and uh, didn't um, decided not to maintain its listing on the NZX. And I think a lot of companies... Well, there's many now that are just going straight. They don't even consider dual listing. They just consider raising on the Australian Stock Exchange, who's come out trying to create a kind of hub, particularly for technology companies globally. They're trying to be like a, a little Pacific NASDAQ, I guess. Um, and so I think that there's, I think you've got it from both sides, I guess, with no new IPOs. You're just left with um, the stagnant stock, as you said, there kind of uh, consolidating or being taken out and you don't have any refresher and then the next breed aren't, aren't choosing to list on the NZF um, by and large. I'm sort of I think always, there's a huge opportunity there. I'm going I'm to make a statement and, I'm, and mm-hmm. you can comment on it. I'm always a bit suspicious of companies that don't list in their home market. Um, I'm not sure if it's just because of the, I guess, the number of Chinese companies that have like backdoor listed onto mm-hmm. a bunch of exchanges worldwide and they turned out to be blatant frauds. But I'm always a bit concerned when, and it might not be, I'm not saying it's the case with any particular New Zealand companies that are listed in Australia, and might be, but I'm always a bit concerned about companies that go and sell their stories outside of their home market. Yeah, I think that's fair generally. Uh, I, I would agree. Um, a very large percentage of cases. So uh, Chinese listed companies, I think there was a stat where Chinese listed companies in the US, um, the first wave, 20% of them were found to be fraudulent. 
which is a very high number for a public market where the fraud rate is more like 1% normally. Uh, so there is definitely, I think you're right to question them. And uh, I think that that stands in most cases. In this case, though, I think uh, a lot of companies are just not, I guess, I think it's changing basically where good companies now are considering even moving their listing to the ASX because they just don't see the opportunity and liquidity on the NZX that they used to. Um, and I was talking to some, a fund a fund manager the other day about what's happening, and his his view was that uh, so much of the trading on the New Zealand Stock Exchange now happens off market in these kind of um, direct uh, exchanges. So just describe uh, that. That's, that's when maybe like um, I've got a large block of shares to sell. You want to buy a large block of shares, and and the broker will mm-hmm. organise it off market. Is that what you mean? Exactly. Uh, and yep. the, the person I was talking to uh, indicated maybe 70% of volume is happening that way. And when that happens, I'm not against it being allowed. Like It's, it's normal for that to happen in some cases, but to, the more that happens, it means there's less liquidity and less trade for everyone else. And it just leads to, I think, a less... Yeah, you look at a company and there might only be $5,000 needed to trade to move it 20%. Um, that's not a efficient market and um, it makes it very hard for anyone to come and invest in those companies in New Zealand even if they like the company itself so that's when you're when you're trying to run a good market you want it to be like deep and liquid and have um, prices that reflect reality and all that adds to the costs of, of trading in New Zealand. We had the CFO from the NZX on the, on the podcast a few episodes mm-hmm. back and he, he obviously cited it was something that the well aware of and he believes that they're taking the steps to rectify that but that the actual IPO and process can take years and in some cases mm-hmm. especially for the I guess good companies so it'd be interesting I guess that the proof and the pudding to those sorts of measures maybe we won't know for a few years but I think <coughs> you know, even though you're not in New Zealand anymore necessarily like me you'd love to see a really buoyant NZX wouldn't you yeah, hundred percent, hundred percent. I don't know. I don't know what the solution is entirely, but um, yeah, I'd love to love to see that. And if anyone does know what the answer is, uh, maybe maybe get in touch with you, and we'll we'll see what we can do to help it. But yeah, I think there's a I think there's a huge opportunity in New Zealand as well. It's the worst part of it. We've got so many uh, leading tech companies that are um, that need capital and could do with a, a great liquid market that this, it could be a really good opportunity. And I don't Not know only that, I think of red tape or, yeah. even though I mean, you mentioned the New Zealand market is overlooked, it is. I think it is internationally, but it's not so much in New Zealand. I think mm. percent, I mean, percentage-wise, and this is a anecdotal, but I think percentage-wise, the NZDX actually has quite a large following among individuals. Um, mm-hmm. I think, you know, comparatively, there's, there's less... ETF ownership in our market, for example, which the colliery of yeah. that is that there has to be higher individual investor ownership and there's less fund ownership overall. So we've probably got a higher percentage of interested individual investors in other parts of the world. So, yeah. you know, for, for all the people out there, I, I, I'm sure everyone listening is nodding in agreement that it'd be great to see a, a more buoyant NZX. I mean, we don't want to go back to the days where there was lots of frauds and, and, and things like mm-hmm. that, but it'd be you know, we it'd be great to great to see more publicly listed trading companies in New Zealand. Yeah, hundred percent, completely agree. I don't know if anyone knows how to make it happen, Colin. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, send us reporting on the case.
yeah, I'm not saying I'll do a better job, but yeah. Um, so should we move on to some individual names? Maybe we'll talk about yeah, an, an edX company I know you follow quite closely, mm. which is which is Pushpay. Um, and actually, mm. in the last episode, we had the CEO of, of Pushpay on the line, yeah. um, and he was he was talking about the the new acquisition, which I understand you've done some work and some articles on that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, I wrote about uh, Pushpay's acquisition opportunities maybe a year ago or something like that um, and sh- covered uh, church community builder um, as one of those options, I guess. I can canvas the landscape of different types of companies that Pushpay I wonder if they read your articles. I think, that they, I think that they read it. They got a few views from Pushpay. Um, I think it's passed <laughs> around a bit. I'm not sure. They probably have their own, their own takes on things. But, um, but yeah, no, it was... It was interesting to see church community build have kind of um, come out of that as one of the ones I thought was likely and it did come through, I guess, about uh, six months later. Um, yeah, so obviously they've bought uh, a church management system. That's something that they had uh, shied away from doing for a long time because they didn't want to compete with their uh, distribution partners because uh, that's kind of has push pay kind of plugs into a church management system. But now they've made that move partly because they've already gained enough, I think, and also because they could see it being a way to kind of deepen their relationship with customers. And they flagged that they're going to make this acquisition and then improve the technology over time of that company they've acquired uh, and kind of push payify it, I guess, and then have an opportunity to cross-sell and, and whatever else. So, yeah, it's an what's interesting your, acquisition. What was your overall view of it? If you can so before six months before it happened, I rated it a seven out of ten <laughs> as yeah. my like option. But that um, it was around seven, seven point five. But it depends a lot on the price, and mm. I don't really have enough data yet from Pushpay's releases to, to pass my final judgment on. I guess anything can become attractive at a very attractive price, um, and so that could get bumped up or it could get bumped down a bit once we have a bit more clearer picture. Uh, the price doesn't look cheap from, I think, I guess it depends you know, on what 15 to 20 million. Right. And yeah. It does. It does entirely. And they, there's some, they kind of hinted, I think, on your on your podcast um, that they can transfer some of the revenue that was already been generated by Church Community Builder, move it on the push pay, and that becomes a lot higher margin instantly. So things like that could be behind the scenes. That means management like it a bit more than I did. From the outset, but um, yeah, I mean, they can the market see the, they can see the, the buzzword of synergies in. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Everyone loves some good synergies. Um, yeah, so the market's loved it. It's, it's rallied a lot. I'm, I'm kind of cautiously, cautiously optimistic. Kind of slightly cautious. I want to see see how how much they paid, how how well it actually integrates. Um, what, as what I outlined in the article, the, it doesn't go wrong on What do you think that people interested in the stock and investors should look out for? From push pay going forward, then like what are the what are the key metrics or or things you'd mm-hmm. like to see from them? And I guess conversely, what would be the red or yellow flags? Uh, I think the main one always to watch is growth, because um, they do they have such a large opportunity, and that the shares are priced assuming they'll be able to continue growing, even though they're profitable now. Um, I think that they you want to look at how many large and medium sized churches they're adding and how that mm-hmm. compares to the past. If they're able to maintain that, um, at least maintain the growth uh, at a reasonably high rate, that would be pretty key. The other one I'd be interested to look for is just anything they can break out on uh, church community builder uh, because 
that there should be some new metrics we get from that as a way of tracking how that acquisition is going, and that would be what I'd be watching is making sure that it's... You know, if it, has, if, you know if it hasn't gone well, if you never hear anything, and then in a few years' time, <laughs> yeah, there's, a, there's a big goodwill. And then there's a write-down like in a few years. Yeah, yeah that, that is the way it normally goes. Um, but no, I mean, there's smart smart people there, so I'm sure they've done their, done their work on it. Um, yeah, and so if that, if that is going well and adding value, there's a lot of other opportunities for Pushpay to make further acquisitions, uh, and they didn't even... You know, they were just able to use debt to this one. And so there's a lot of, they still have a lot of opportunity to direct their cash flow as well. And so, yeah, I guess this is a test. Are they uh, good managers, allocators of capital as well as they had been you know, technologists? What What do you think of the management change here? Because it seems to be pretty, you know, yeah. push pay the, the, the senior management looks a lot different than it, what, what it did maybe when me and you first spoke about the stock. Um, say, 18 months ago. It does, yeah. I guess the company itself has changed a lot as well over that time. So gone from being a, very much in cash burn, high growth mode to the decision that flowed from mid-2017 when they decided to focus this on large churches and really stopped uh, impl- you know, growing their sales force at all. That's just flat line for a couple of years. So a very conscious decision to um, focus on cash flows and how they can grow that. So I think... Uh, the new CEO Prince Gordon is a good fit for that model. I think the interesting part will be whether they are able to maintain their kind of position in the market, being being in the faith sector. Uh, the two founders uh, were both very good. I don't know what the word for it would be. Exponents of the values of Pushbane and mm. was making sure that they are able to keep that position and not be seen to be kind of um, you know exacting a rent not not putting prices up so much that um, people are annoyed and feeling like they're being gouged and making sure they can kind of... Yeah, that, that would be the real yeah. interesting thing for me is is how far can they go with the, the pricing? Because it's obviously, if you're donating money, at, at mm-hmm. some point, there's a there's a number, and I'm not sure where it is, where you start to notice the, the cut that push pay might be taking. And how yeah. they have there, I guess, is the interesting question. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I don't think they'll push too much on that cut, but they'll probably push more on the software fees because that's where they can increase the value and kind of sell it as a value mm-hmm. add to the customer. Um, as long as they're creating enough value, I guess, is the, the thing. As long as the new features, whatever they're adding, is valuable enough, then that's fine. Um, you just it, It's always a balance whenever you're trading something so sticky, that kind of software, where you want to you want to be raising prices, but you want to do it because you've, add a lot of value and you capture some of that value. You don't want to be capturing all or more than the value you create and you get into trouble. Uh, so that's why, again, focusing on the number of clients being one helps you to differentiate between price rises and uh, underlying client growth. Mm. And, yeah, that's, a, that's why it's a good metric to monitor. So I've got a mate, right, and every day for the last week, he's pretty much been texting me or sending me a message on, on Facebook going, did you see Tesla stock last night? <laughs> does he own Tesla shares? I'm not sure if he does or not, but then what okay. I what I do is I go onto my Interactive Brokers app and I search up the Tesla code and invariably, it was down 15% last night, but I see that it's up, 20, it was, it, most days he texts me, I look at it and it's up 15 to 20%. And the I guess the appreciation and market, market capitalization of Tesla has been quite astonishing over the last little while and it's a, 
I know it's a stock that one way or another, if you're listening, you've probably got an opinion on it. So I'd love to hear what you think. Yeah, so for those who aren't um, big on Twitter, it's a very hot topic there. There's a big financial Twitter um, community and that's divided into two very you mean angry financial fans. financial Tesla community. Yeah. So um half well, I don't know what the numbers break down, but a large number of people love Tesla and then a large number think that it's going bankrupt and there's not much in between. Um and so it, that and it's kind of demonstrated in the uh, short sellers that have attacked the share price as well. I think um, we were chatting before, Jimmy, you had a stat on how much of it was currently sold short. Was it oh, I think, I'm not sure if it's up-to-date data, but I read I read the mm-hmm. other day that saying like 18 to 20% of the stock is held short. That would have been at the last data point, which I guess would have been in January. I, I probably suggest mm-hmm. that less of it's held short now. <laughs> yeah. So it was the most shorted company in the world, I believe. Um, so tens of billions of dollars have been bet. And when you're shorting a company, you're betting that the share price is going to fall. And the mechanics of that is kind of interesting without getting too into the weeds. But it means that you effectively you sell the stock today at whatever price it is. Uh, say it was $300 a year ago when they started shorting it. And you're and so you sell it today, you get that cash, and then you are hoping to uh, buy it back in future at a uh, at a lower price. So that you can then return the, the shares that you've sold. So you borrow someone's shares, sell them, and uh, plan to give it back to them uh, and keep a profit on the way, hoping that it'll fall in price. Um, so you make you make money so, in the exact opposite. To simplify it, you make money in the exact opposite way as if you were to buy the stock, right? Yeah, you make money the opposite way, but the important point is that it forces you to buy the stock at some point in the future. Yeah. So you make money. It's, it's, it's a bit different. Um, yeah, it's just it's just that that's an interesting so that, component. And that that 18% of people, at some stage, mm-hmm. unless they decide to hold the stock short forever, are either mm-hmm. are going to have to buy it back either at a higher price or at a lower price, right? Exactly, exactly right. Yeah. And so, <laughs> over the last uh, few months, you had Twitter um, have some very good quarterly results. It's a debate, obviously, that same community that hate Tesla. I think that it. Um, it was a one-time benefit from some stock that was produced earlier. I won't get into that, but they had really good results. Um, and they also had another uh, announcement with Panasonic, which was very positive. And anyway, a, a bunch of positive news came through, which pushed the share price up. And you've now got a situation that they call a short squeeze, where all of those short sellers are now, um, as the share price rises, they start making losses. Because at least you shorted it. At the night before last on the close, you're mm-hmm. not you're not profitable if you're a short seller, are you? Correct, and, and very unprofitable. So, and, and uh, this was about a week ago, so it's even worse now probably. But at that point, year to date, um, short sellers, so investors had lost nine billion dollars um, betting against Tesla. And the interesting thing with a short position, which is again the opposite, and in many ways it's the opposite of investing long. Your position grows in size the more mm. that you lose, and so uh, these people then get asked to put in more um, capital to their account to cover the losses um, that they're making, and the position grows and grows. It's the opposite. When you get something wrong as a long investor, it shrinks and shrinks in your portfolio, and you know becomes. But a short, a short squeeze feeds upon itself as well, doesn't it? Because you've it got, does. especially with a stock like Tesla. I mean, I think that. It, Regardless of what you felt of its value, I think it's a, a crazy stock mm-hmm. to to short. I think if you had a negative view on it, a far safer way would be to buy put options, at least then you're li- limiting your potential losses. But I guess with 
I, Elon Musk's, it, regardless of, I'm, I'm, I don't have an opinion on it either way, but apart from the fact that the cars are amazing, um, mm-hmm. re- regardless of, he's, he's always proven a way to be able to raise money and you'd expect him to be able to do that into the future. And with the amount of, I guess, positive feeling and like you said, anger that this cult generates, you know, you can you can see it's not just a short squeeze. I think it's the momentum that people climb on board. It's the story. It's it's everything else. And then I, I think there's a bit of people realising that there's a short squeeze going on as well, and they pile yeah. into the stock, and it just feeds upon itself. And that makes more of a short squeeze. And yeah, exactly. Um, and then suddenly, like came... those people that have a that may have had a a position a short position that made up five percent of their portfolio a year ago in Tesla. Suddenly, that short position now makes up, you know, maybe fifteen, twenty percent of your portfolio, mm-hmm. and it can be very stressful. Because mm-hmm. what, what is really, if you felt the stock was overvalued, stopping it from being double now? You know, theoretically, mm-hmm. it, it, there's no limit to where a, a stock can mm-hmm. go, right? Exactly, it's the exact opposite. Again, you have with a normally buying a stock, you have limited downside, 100 percent, and unlimited upside potential, and that's the opposite with shorting. Um, and as you say, that short squeeze, so they get a call, they set the, the bank or whoever's lent them their shares says that you have to tip in more cash or you have to buy back the stock now. So it's just like you just get a, a wave of people who just can't take any more pain and have to buy the stock and that pushes the share price up further. And so more people then are in more pain. And um, so, yeah, it's an interesting cycle that feeds on itself. Um, and I think that people betting against it probably feel hard done by. In some ways, Elon Musk actually came out and said they're only weeks away from bankruptcy last year during one of the, I think it was last year during one of the tough times. He only just said this recently. Um, but yeah, so it's, uh, it's interesting. It's interesting both ways, I guess. And a lot of uh, otherwise smart people have lost a lot of money trying to bet against it. Yeah, that's sort of, yeah, it, it, regardless of what you felt about it, it seems like just, a too high risk short position for me, and I think there's other ways to achieve the same thing. Um, yeah, but that, that's just my my own my own opinion. Yeah. I remember Charlie Munger summed it up quite well when he was talking about Elon Musk in an interview. He said something along the lines of, "You've got a guy that's that's swinging for the fences," which you'd have to say Elon Musk is is, is done with with Tesla. He's mm-hmm. trying to hit it out of the park, um, and he said it could go. He said it has a, a fair chance of coming off, and it has a fair chance of failure as well. So, mm. I, I think it's summed it up quite nicely. Yeah, and I think you have to you have to factor in Elon Musk's like charisma and magnetism as well. Like the people that like him don't just like him; they think he's um, a saviour. Uh, and so that ability to uh, influence the share price is much stronger than other um, CEOs, and that that feeds on itself, right? If he can, if he goes out and raises. $10 billion now, which is 100% what I'd be telling him to do if I was him, then that company isn't going to go bankrupt anytime soon and a lot of the mm. things that other people exactly. complain about. So, it, you know, it works. It kind of feeds on itself. If you get enough positive momentum, you can translate that into actual fundamentals. Yeah. And then you've got a bunch of people, if you're the, I guess, the the cool and calm short seller, well, we may be not cool and calm, but you're the short seller that is making your bets based mm-hmm. purely on mathematical valuation and, and where you see the company and, you, and you're up against a, a bunch of buyers that in the short term might be buying because of Elon Musk's charisma or they might be buying for completely different reasons and momentum or they might be just trying to squeeze you out of your short position. Suddenly you're up against people that don't care about valuation, at least in the short term. 
exactly. and that's not to say Quest is over or undervalued. It just means you're in a rubbish position if you're a short seller. Yeah, yeah, 100%. So, yeah, interesting one to watch. I like being on the sidelines. I'm not a, I'm not a short seller myself, so it wouldn't be my game. But, um, yeah, it's good. Hopefully, I don't know, hopefully there's an electric car revolution and we are all driving around in or self-driving electric cars and that'll be fun. I took one for a drive. Did I tell you? It was... Um, I took it for a test drive. Um, that, that's what you do if you ever see a, a Tesla at the shopping mall and you want to take it for a drive. You go get friendly to the to the staff, um, and you, you may you may very well get offered a drive. And that's what happened to me. And it was I, I think that it was the best car I've ever driven, but it might not mean too much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. They definitely make. I mean, yeah, they definitely make good products that people love and um yeah the, the fans are like volunteering to go and people go and bring donuts to the factory workers like it's a it's a it's a not common amount of love and i think that you don't want to underrate that yeah yeah uh, yeah exactly is there any other companies or, or or stocks or topics that you'd like to have a quick no i think that's pretty much it but yeah i'm happy to come on anytime in, in future if you want to chat anything else through absolutely matt we'll we'll you'll You'll get another few calls from me, no doubt. This, no doubt, later <laughs> in the year. Um, is if people want to find out more about you, is there somewhere they can go? Yeah, just um, my personal website, uh, com or uh, my company is www.mavenfunds.com.au. So Maven, either no, those search for my name or mavenfunds.com.au. And on your yeah, personal so. website, you do a blog and some regular updates, don't you? Yeah, correct. That's why I wrote about PushPay and uh, other thoughts um, from time to time. And yeah, likely to be publishing again in the next few weeks. So. Great. Stay so tuned. people can go subscribe to that and receive your, your yeah. updates. Yeah, exactly. Fantastic. Thanks very much for coming on for the third time, Matt. Look forward to speaking no to you. No worries. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, Cheers. look forward to it. Thanks very much, Jeremy. Yeah. See ya. Right, that's about all we have time for. Thanks very much for tuning in to the first episode of the year. Sorry it's taken so long. Thanks again for to Matt for another appearance on the podcast. Get on to Matt's blog and, and, and content as well. He puts out some good stuff, not just short, superficial stuff. He puts out deep dives into companies and, and stocks, so some really interesting things. Um, interesting how he flagged the push-pay acquisition in advance as well. So as a reminder, nothing that we see today should be considered financial advice. If you want to find out more about the podcast, go to stockmarketmovers.co.nz or find us and give it a like by searching on Facebook. Make sure also to, also to share it with your friends. Email me at jeremy at stockmarketmovers.co.nz if you have any questions. Once again, my name is Jeremy Medlin and this has been episode 71 of the Stock Market Movers podcast for Saturday the 8th of February 2020. See you next week.